to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. This morning we are in the second week of Advent. Uh, we're in a series called Hope for a Weary World. We believe that, uh, that Jesus brings hope for our weariness, or sorry, that a weary world rejoices. Um, we, we, have a, we have hope that comes in Christ. And we talked about that last week, um, about the hope that comes through Jesus. This morning, we're gonna be continuing this idea looking at um, the theme of joy. And if you notice, if, if you read our scripture reading and you were here last week, we went backwards. Uh, we went out of order. It's a little bit like Star Wars, you um, Star Wars starts with episode four, and uh, we're going to the prequel. I hope these prequels are better than those Star Wars prequels. Um, but uh, we're going backwards a little bit, and at Advent, we get the opportunity to look at the gospel story thematically, where we're looking at hope, joy, peace, and then ultimately love. And last week, we looked at the idea of hope uh, through the eyes of Zechariah, Zechariah's prophecy, or as I described it, Zechariah's song. And what we see in this is that Zechariah had been waiting, and the people of Israel had been waiting for hundreds of years for Jesus to return, or for a Messiah, that Jesus comes as the greatest fulfillment of that hope. Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth uh, were barren. They were unable to have a child, and in her old age, they had this child. It ends up being John the Baptist, who's the forerunner of Jesus, and they see this as the first glimmer of hope, that God is bringing hope for his people. And so also we see that Jesus, as the truest picture of that hope, is ultimately what all of our hopes are longing for. Everything we hope in, everything we look to in order to make us okay is ultimately a shadow of Jesus. It's a shadow of the longing and the hope that only Jesus can fulfill. And those things kind of act as signposts. Our hope for, for a relationship, our hope for intimacy, our hope for fulfillment and, and, and love and, and acceptance is ultimately pointing us towards our need for a savior, pointing us to Jesus. And this morning, we're going to be looking at also how Jesus is the source of true joy. He is the only one who can give us joy. But how do you define joy? When you think of the word joy, what do you think of? My youngest daughter, Amelie, when she was little, she used to say that, that gummy worms were the smell of joyness. Um, joyness is now a word in our house. Uh, she loved a gummy worm. She got that from her mother. That was handed down to her, her through the genes. Um, I love a good gummy worm. And so when you think about what brings us joy, uh, what, joy and happiness are a little bit different. Um, it's, joy is not just feeling happy. Now, I used to would say that joy was, was deeply rooted and that happiness was, was circumstance. It's just, you know, is a feeling of happiness. But we can express our joy in happy ways. If you're joyful, you're often happy. You often express it with a smile on your face. You express it through singing. You express it through dancing. Nobody wants to see me do that this morning, so I will not express my joy that way. Um, but we, we express our joy often through happiness, but joy has to go beyond a happy feeling. Joy has to be more than happy circumstances, because how do you find joy when you're struggling? How do you find joy when you're suffering? How do you find joy when life doesn't turn out the way that you thought it would? And you're sitting there months or years or even decades later wondering, man, I, I wonder what life would look like if I'd made that one different decision. Happiness ultimately is circumstantial, but real joy has a root in something. There's a reason that we can have un 
unfaded joy. And what gives you joy, what you're looking to to give you joy is what you're looking to to satisfy you, what you're looking to to satisfy your soul. And all of us are looking to something to satisfy us, something to root our lives and something steady to stand upon that's going to help us be joyful. And so we see that joy relates to our theme last week of hope because our hope as it proves itself to be steady, begins to express itself in joy. If what you're able to hope in, what you hope in, it it will actually increase your joy. John Piper says that joy is really a good feeling as we see and savor and enjoy and treasure Christ. As we see Jesus, as we see him more and more, we treasure Christ more. And what this does is it steadies our soul, or as Tony Evans says, that joy is internal stability in spite of external struggles. And we see how joy can be had through the life of Mary. And this morning, we're going to be looking at Mary's Magnificent, which is Latin for Mary's hymn, Mary's song. We're looking at another song this morning, a song of joy through the very unique eyes of Mary. And so what does Mary teach us about joy? The first thing is that we can have joy over unlikely good news. We have joy over very unlikely, unforeseen good news. And one of the most beautiful and life-giving aspects of the gospel is who God chose to communicate the gospel through. God didn't choose the mightiest. He didn't choose the greatest. He didn't choose the strongest. He didn't choose the people with the most Twitter followers. He chose the lowly. And we see that the very first two recipients of the gospel of long-awaited good news were two forgotten and overlooked women. There was no documentary crew following around the writers of the gospels. This wasn't the office. There wasn't someone, the sitcom, someone sitting in the corner with a camera and documenting every little event that happened in the gospel story. The way that we received these words were from eyewitnesses. And the first recipients of this good news was an older, barren woman and a teenage girl from a little podunk town. The Gospels were written from eyewitness accounts, and so we see this from Matthew and John. And the reason that there are four different Gospel accounts is so that we can see the the multitude of eyewitnesses. 1 Corinthians says over 500 people saw Jesus alive after after uh, after the crucifixion. They saw him risen again. We see in Matthew and John that these were direct disciples of Jesus who were taking their eyewitness account of what Jesus' life, death, and resurrection looked like and writing it for us to read over 2,000 years later. But we also see some others who sourced it from from other people. Mark, when he wrote his gospel, Peter was his source. He He sat down with Peter and he basically took Peter's life story. And Luke, who writes the gospel of Luke, was the apostle Paul's doctor. And he writes this to a man named Theophilus, and he says, these are the things that I want you to know. He says all the way back in verse 4 that he's writing these things that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. These things from, as verse 2 says, in the beginning there were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word that have delivered them to us, and the people that God chose to deliver it to them were Elizabeth and Mary. I've been deeply indebted uh, to Rebecca McLaughlin and her book, uh, Jesus Through the Eyes of Women, to help with this sermon. And she notes the background that we have here for for Israel and for Mary. And the, the nation of Israel had been under the control of other empires for over 700 years. 
It was, they've been sent into exile multiple times. The Assyrians uh, overtook them, and then the Babylonians, and then the Persians, and then the Greeks, and then the Romans, and they had varying degrees of autonomy in, depending on who was over them. Sometimes it was as if, as if no one was there. You ever, you ever had that boss who just kind of checks out? They don't ever, they're not hands-on at all. You can pretty much get away with murder. That's what it was like for a few of these. The Romans, on the other hand, were stomping out all opposition. I went to a football game back in, in the year 2000. I'm a big Auburn college football fan. We were playing one of our rivals, Georgia. It goes to triple overtime. Auburn wins in this unexpected fashion. And then everybody begins to rush the field. Have you ever seen that happen? Everybody's going to rush the field. And, and sometimes it's more successful than others because the first person that got across the hedges gets choke slammed by security. And everybody stopped. We're like, you know what? It wasn't that great of a win. We're, we're, we might win another game. We got a game next week. Let's all save our legs. And, and so it's the same thing here. Jewish historians Philo and Josephus detailed multiple rebellions that people tried to bring up in, during this time. They tried to raise up against the Roman Empire. And in fact, if you look at Acts chapter 5, Gamaliel sitting, standing before the Sanhedrin, uh, the Sanhedrin, the legislative body, talked about Thutis and Judas the Galilean who rose up and had a following and then were crushed and actually said that if Jesus is really who he says he is, then we're not going to be able to stop him. And we see now, sitting here 2,000 years later, that the gospel has not stopped. It has gone forward. But yet Rebecca McLaughlin says that this world of oppression this world of weariness and hopelessness and drudgery is the world that Mary was born into. The Mary was as insignificant as you could possibly get. In fact, one in five Jewish women were named Mary. She was poor. She was engaged to a, to a poor carpenter. And so when the angel comes to Mary and, she, and says, I have good news, it seems unbelievable. And that's why if you look at the story, it starts with confusion. If you go all the way back to verse 28, the angel comes to Mary and says, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And Mary is confused because she's saying, What about my life seems favored? What about my life seems like God is, is blessing me? He says, the angel says, but she, it says in verse 29, but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And we see this good news beginning to stir in her heart. The first flicker of hope is going to spring into joy in verse 31 when the angel says, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. Now Mary is probably starting to get interested because she's a descendant of David. And she remembers all the stories of being told how one would rule on the throne of David who would never have their kingdom taken away. Verse 33, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. She's beginning to remember this and she's beginning to hope and she's beginning to see joy come Forward, and so we see confusion move to curiosity. Verse 34, she says, she says to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? So she's moving from this seeming impossible to I don't know how you're going to do this. She's curious. Verse 35, the angel says to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. 
God is going to graciously use her in such a way where the Spirit fills her and that she bears the very Son of God. And in verses 36 and 37, we see curiosity move to celebration because she says, uh, it says, uh, the, um, the uh, angel says, and behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now we see celebration happen because what does she immediately do? She immediately travels about 80 to 100 miles to go be with her cousin. She's seeing that maybe these two events aren't disconnected. That God is doing something miraculous in, in barren Elizabeth and he's doing something miraculous in giving Mary, a teenage unwed mother, a child who's never had sex, who's not even married. God is up to something. And just like that child would grow in her womb, the hope of the Savior grows into full-throated joy in Mary. And when she goes to Mary, John the Baptist in Elizabeth's womb leaps for joy. Ever heard that term, leaping for joy? It literally comes from this story. There's real joy to be had. And so what does this tell us about this unlikely good news? Is that it first comes to unlikely recipients. Good news comes for those who least likely think that it's coming. God so values those that the world overlooks. Particularly in this time, God is speaking through women, whereas in a a culture where women were often devalued, the Bible honors them and dignifies them. We see the first words of Jesus' public ministry. What did he say? He said that he came to liberate the poor. He came for the downtrodden. He came for the weak. And this means that there can be real joy for weary people in a weary world. Jesus even said in the Beatitudes, who did he come for? He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Alistair Begg says that hungry, hopeless people can come to this song and find the answers for their life. Not joy that's just a happy feeling, but real joy that can't be taken away by a bad day at work or a fruitless career or relational struggles It's the type of joy that holds on to you when you suffer and holds you when you struggle. So the good news comes to unlikely recipients, but the good news also creates an unlikely reversal. Look at who gets elevated and who gets brought low. Verse 51 says, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. And look at this, and exalted those of humble estate. The humble are exalted and the proud are scattered in their hearts. When we think about many are the plans of a man's heart, many are the plans of our hearts, but what does God do to our self-made plans? He scatters them. We saw this in the Tower of Babel a few weeks ago, that what God was doing in that moment was, was foiling the plans of sinful people so that they didn't do even more damage. You know, if your kid for somehow, somehow gets a copy of the, the Ikea instructions, and begins to get out power tools, which you should need for Ikea furniture, and starts to make a mess of things, what should you do? You should scatter their plans. In the same way, God scatters the plans of our proud hearts to humble us and help us see that we need him. Verse 53 says the same thing. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Now, this isn't saying that rich people can't be saved, but there's a reason that revival often happens among the poor why it often happens among the least likely. 
Because often those who see that they need it the most are the most willing to receive it. Because the rich are often really self-sufficient. If you're someone who really doesn't have to worry about where the next paycheck's going to come from or you're not living hand to mouth, you can be pretty self-sufficient. But if you're someone who understands that you need the gospel every hour, you need Jesus every moment of every day, faith hits a little bit different than if you feel like you only need God when you're out of control. Because what we often do is we say, God, I've got this until things seem like they're just out of our reach. We're thankful God has blessed us, but we're rarely dependent upon him. But what Jesus came to do is he came to turn our worlds upside down because the world needed unlikely good news. Because if the good life was simply being powerful, if the good life was simply being successful, if the good life was having enough money, if the good life was looking good in the eyes of the world, Jesus never would have came because there was a way to do that. You can step on other people and you can rise to the top and you can make more money and you can do all these things, but Jesus came so that the world would look different because he created us for good news. He created us for joy. And I also want us to be careful not to over-spiritualize this passage. Where Jesus goes, brokenness and oppression should cease. Where the church of God goes, the, the, the hungry should be fed and the needy should be clothed and, and, and the orphan should be cared for. These are pictures of the joy that Jesus brings. And this is why as a church, we're committed to things like foster care and adoption, to caring for our homeless neighbors and serving in English high school and, and doing missions across the world is because we want to spread the joy of God. Jesus' kingdom, the way up to joy is down through humility. And so let's see how humility is the road to joy. Joy is enjoyed by the humble. In verse 47, Mary bursts into song. Verses 46 and 47, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Why? Verse 48, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servants. Humble hope in God springs into joy. Humility allows us to see how God is at work in us and through us. Mary's able to see this. She says in verse 49, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. What are the great things that God has done for Mary? She's now going to have the very son of God. She's gonna be the chosen one to bring the son of God into the world. God's working her in her in this miraculous way in a way that she never would have planned. You know, Mary didn't wake up on Tuesday morning and say, you know what, it'd be really nice if God wrecked my wedding that's coming up. She's betrothed to Joseph and she's thinking, okay, I'm gonna have this really modest wedding and we're gonna get married. It's gonna be a simple life. We're gonna live in Nazareth. We're gonna have some kids. We're gonna have some grandkids. I'm gonna take them to go play soccer. They're gonna get in the band. We're gonna do all these things. That's probably what she's imagining. She didn't wake up thinking I'm going to carry God's son. Yet here she is, unwed, about to face mockery and rumor about who Jesus' daddy was and all the side-eyes look she was going to get down at the well every time she went down there to get water. So why can she say in verse 48, for behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed? Why, why is she able to say that? Because in verse 49, she connects the great things that God has done to the fact that holy is his name. Holy is his name. His name is his entire character, his entire being. God is holy. He, he is good. He is, 
He is other. He is sinless. He never makes a mistake. And what that means is that whatever God brings into your life is not evil or wrong or to hurt you, but for your good. And what it also means is that whatever God chooses not to bring into your life is also for your good. Mary is able to see this and understand that she will be considered blessed, but if you're proud, you'll never see that. If you're a prideful person, you'll never be able to see all the ways that God is working in your life when he holds something back or he brings something into your life that you never would have expected because you would say, well, I deserve that. I deserved that promotion or I deserved that relationship or I deserved that raise. I deserved that thing. Or, or the timing was just wrong and God didn't bring that into my life. If we're proud, we'll never be able to see the blessing that God is bringing to us, the joy he's trying to bring about. But Mary's able to see this. She sees herself as blessed. Not only will she see herself as blessed, other people will call her blessed. See, long obedience, which means doing the faithful, simple things of following God leads to joy. It always wins out in the end. Even if in the moment you're facing momentary sorrow, there is joy to come. The other thing humility allows us to do is see God's bigger plan. God is bringing a redemptive plan here. And Mary's prayer echoes this. If you look back in the Old Testament, there was another woman named Hannah whose prayer looked a lot like Mary's. Hannah was, was an, a woman who was infertile, and she praises God because of the fact that she was able to have Samuel. And she ends up giving Samuel over to Eli to be a, a prophet for Israel. And in fact, what's interesting about her is that she was the first person in the Old Testament to directly prophesy about this everlasting king to come. And in verses 54 and 55, Mary picks up on this when she says, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. What Mary is able to see is that this is a whole lot bigger than herself. That not only has God helped Mary the servant, God has helped Israel, his servant, and that he's going to do this by sending his son to be a servant to suffer for us so that we can have joy. And so she's willing to humble herself and sacrifice for this greater joy to come because when you see that greater joy is available, you're willing to humble yourself for it. You're willing to do whatever it takes. I remember my first car. It was a 1990 Pontiac Sunbird. I'm telling you, picking up all the ladies in that thing. Okay, they don't even make Sunbirds anymore. I don't think Pontiac even exists. It wasn't a nice car. It had cigarette burns in the ceiling, but it was black and it had a CD player. And in 1998, those were the only two things that mattered. Okay, and so that thing was a tank. Like I, I hit more things with that car than you could possibly imagine. I worked two whole summers to get that car. I worked in my dad's warehouse, a farm supply warehouse, under the table to make money, I think like $5 an hour. I was grinding for it in order to save every dime I possibly could to buy a car. I didn't buy anything for like two summers. I scraped all the money I had together to get $2,000 to buy this car. And all my friends were like, you're nuts. You're crazy. Let's go to McDonald's. Let's go to the movies. Let's go do whatever. Let's go play paintball. I was willing to sacrifice and bear the cost for a greater joy ahead of me. And Rebecca McLaughlin again talks about the cost for Mary to carry Jesus. It cost her her body. 
She, she lived in a time where it was dangerous to have a child. And women who uniquely have the ability to carry a child and understand that in a way that men do not, her body bore the cost. Your body is never the same. You're giving of yourself to have this child. Mary gave up her reputation. She gave up potentially her marriage prospects. If you look later in the text, Joseph is ready to bail. He's like, I'm just going to quietly divorce her and get out of this thing until an angel comes to him and says, don't do that. It was costly for Mary, but greater joy and honor were to be found in God as she carried God the Son because letting Jesus in is costly. When Jesus enters your life, it is costly, but it is the only way to the only joy that can satisfy us. Mary had to carry Jesus. She, she had to raise Jesus. She had to let Jesus go. She had to watch her very own son die in order to receive the joy that came through Jesus. And this means two things. One is you've got to let Jesus all the way in. He's got to come all the way into your life. He demands everything. He demands your heart. And the thing about your heart is he knows what's in there. It's like an episode of Hoarders. When those people come into the, to the house, your heart is like a hoarder's house. They know what's inside that closet. You may not want to deal with it, but they know what's in there. In the same way, Jesus knows what's in your heart. And that's why in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus talks about sin, he goes a lot deeper than the choices we make to the very things that reside in our hearts. And that's why he says, when you lust, it's as if you've committed adultery. And when you hate someone, it's as if you've committed murder because Jesus knows how deep the sin goes. And you have to let him into the very depth of who you are to give you that joy. The second thing is that Jesus uniquely understands your suffering because for the what set before Jesus, for the joy set before Jesus, he willingly suffered on the cross. Jesus knew not just suffering on the cross, he knew earthly suffering. He lost family. A little bit later on, his cousin, John the Baptist, is murdered. His father, who we believe died somewhere between the times of 12 and 30, probably died before Jesus' ministry. We don't see him at the cross. He lost his father. He lost friends. He lost his friend Lazarus. He actually says that Jesus wept. Jesus was betrayed by, some of his, his, by his closest friends. Jesus came into our world and took on a human body and suffered everything that we suffered so that he could both empathize with it and also so that he could suffer so that we would never suffer again. The last idea is this, that joy changes you from the inside out. Something miraculous happens when you let Jesus all the way in. He begins to change you. If you look at verses 46 and 47, you see something really unique about Jewish literature. If you ever see two statements, particularly in poetry, that look to be the, almost the same, it's a parallel. It's actually emphasizing what's being said. So Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. My soul and my spirit is like Mary saying, I, emphatically, I magnify the Lord and I rejoice in God, my Savior. She's saying from the very core of who I am, from the center of my life, I want to magnify and rejoice in the Lord who saves me. She placed the hope of Jesus deep in her heart that he would one day be exactly who God said he would be, and it produced great joy. And John Piper says that the only people whose soul can truly magnify the Lord are people like Elizabeth and Mary, people who acknowledge their lowly estate 
and are overshadowed by the condescension of the magnificent God, that God would take on flesh and become a human baby. And what this does as we do this is it changes what you magnify, it changes what you rejoice in, what you worship. And we see this through two stories in Mary's life that show her heart and how she deeply rooted this joy in her. One is a little bit later on in chapter two, where the shepherds come to Mary and Joseph after Jesus' birth. And, and they're, they're saying all these things concerning the child. And in verse 19, it says, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. This time of, of joy and, and confusion and worry about the future, they come and they give her assurance. A little bit later on, 12 years later in the temple, Jesus is 12. They go to the temple to worship, they leave, and it takes them like, a day to re- and a half to realize that Jesus isn't with them. It takes a day and a half to go back. So Jesus is missing for three days. And you know, if you, if you have children you know, or if you've ever been a child, you know that tendency to wander away. And when I was a kid, I would go to like Kmart or Walmart. I'm hiding in the clothing, like trying to avoid my mom. Like she, you know, Jesus is in the temple and there, she probably forgot that Jesus wasn't like other kids. She's like, oh man, Jesus wandered away. What's he doing? He's you know, messing with the priest's robe or something. So she's not real sure what's going on. And she's reminded in this moment that Jesus was unlike any other little boy. She goes there and they're like, you've worried us half to death. What were you doing? And she said, don't, he says, don't you know that I needed to be in my father's house? And it says that she treasured these things in her heart. Mary had to spend her entire life grappling with who Jesus is. She had to spend her entire life wrestling with her vision of what Jesus' life was going to look like. Because I'm sure she imagined that Jesus was going to grow up and meet a nice young Jewish girl and they were going to get married and she was going to, he was going to give her grandchildren and, and that you know, he was going to live right close there and, and, and love mom. And they were going to live, he was going to live this long, happy life. She never imagined that she was going to see her own son die on a cross. But in the same way, Mary had to die to that vision in the way that she had to die to the vision of her own life. She had to die to the vision of the life that she could have to have a greater joy in the life that God had for her. And you and I have to do the exact same thing. We have to die to the vision of the life that we want if we want the joy that God provides. We have to die to our vision of what happiness and what success and what fulfillment look like in order to receive the joy that Jesus promises. We have to die to that and we have to let Jesus all the way in to see God change us. Rebecca McLaughlin says, Jesus cannot fit around our lives. Brought in when he's convenient. He's either Lord of everything we have and are and ever will become, or he is not. Do you treasure Christ as your greatest joy? And here's how you know this word, that he is willing to stick with you to the very end. Joy changes what you rejoice in. As we close, just three questions to consider. First of all, have you let Jesus all the way into your life? Have you surrendered your life to Christ? Have you given yourself to him and said, Jesus, you are the one who is my joy? Secondly, where are you looking to for joy? What are you looking to to satisfy your soul? And then lastly, what part of the gospel story will you treasure this week? What part of the gospel story will you treasure in your heart and ponder and be that thing that you think about on those days when you're struggling. Maybe it's the forgiveness of your sins. Maybe it's the mercy that God provides. Maybe it's the grace that you realize you don't deserve. Maybe it's the fact that you've been brought into a new family through Jesus. Whatever it is, let's ponder on that this week.